Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, Mark chapter 10. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Mark. And we've really been looking at it as a, a disciple manual, um, discipleship manual. Uh, you just see Mark leading the disciples, or Jesus leading the disciples on this journey. And you see them just kind of growing and their eyes opening and them starting to understand what it really means to follow him. So it's a great discipleship manual for yourself and a great manual for, uh, for you to take somebody else through. I, I was encouraging people to use IMC, Identity Mission Call, to take notes. What does it say about J- Jesus' identity? What does the text say about his mission, what he's about? What does it say about his call upon our lives? If you do that, you can really glean a lot from this book. And you know, as I woke up this morning, I, I started thinking I should have titled this sermon Unstuck, uh, because this is one of those passages, I think, those discipleship passages that helps you get unstuck. Sometimes in our Christian walk, we, we, we start off well, but we kind of get stuck at some point, where we feel like we're not progressing, we're not growing, we, we're a blurry about what God wants from us how things are supposed to work. It's kind of like when you're, I was talking to Jay about it, and he said it's kind of like when you're working on one of those Ikea pieces of furniture, and you know, you get to a certain point, and it's not going to weather right, and you don't have enough pieces left, and you, you're stuck, and then you kind of look at the directions, and you turn them over, and oh, that's the top, and you have to backtrack a little bit to get unstuck and start again. I think that's what this passage kind of does for us spiritually. Now, I wanted to start this morning by talking about uh, a time when our former pastor and I, so our former pastor, Paul Reese, and I was the assistant pastor, a time when we went out on the streets of Spokane uh, to interview people and ask them a question. And we had with us a a video camera before the phones, right? You had the video camera, so you looked kind of like a news crew when you were trying to interview people. And uh, we asked this question of people, what do you need most? What do you need most? And of course, a lot of people immediately said, a million dollars. Uh, but we got some interesting answers. We were in the mall, and there was an old guy there, and he thought about it, and he said, I need an Avalon, a Toyota Avalon. I don't know why, but that's what he thought he really needed. There was a girl at the bus station, and she thought for a minute, and she said, I need my baby's father. That's what she said. There was a park worker who immediately said, God, and my second thing is money. <laughs> Uh, there was a girl, it was kind of a yuppieish girl downtown, and she said, motivation. You just need motivation in life. It's an interesting question. How would you answer that? And think if the person asking it to you actually could grant your request. You know, they were a person of a lot of means. Maybe it's, you know, Mark Cuban or Bill Gates, and they're asking you, what do you need most? What are you going to say? Because this is, this is not a hypothetical anymore. What would you ask for? And I bring this up because it reminds me a lot of our text. In this section of Mark, it's bookended by a very similar question. In the first part of the text, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, look at verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And if you know it, that comes up again, that question. Look at almost the very end of our text, verse 50. There's a blind man, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? I guess it's verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? 
We're not supposed to miss this. Mark bookends this section to make a point. What do you want from me? Jesus, who can give everything, is asking that question. He says, just name it. And I think the answers that we see given here from the disciples and from Bartimaeus reveal a discipleship heart. So we see their responses and their interaction with them. We see, in a sense, what the real heart of being a disciple is. And we're supposed to ask ourselves and examine our own hearts about how we would answer that question. So, okay, so let's, now that we kind of see that framework, let's go to the beginning of the passage with verse 32, and let's get into it. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus is on the road with his disciples. He's walking ahead of them, leading them resolutely towards Jerusalem. And the text says the disciples are amazed. He's got, there's hundreds of people following Jesus, the disciples first and then all the rest. And the disciples, it says, they're amazed. It's an interesting reaction. We see that word only used two other times in Mark. It's when Jesus, they first saw Jesus in the synagogue and he was teaching as one who had authority. Not like the scribes who were teaching from authorities, from the traditions and from the text. He was speaking truth right out of his mouth. And they were amazed. And then the second time is right before this text, where Jesus told them it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, that he needed to be like a child. And it says, they're amazed. It's kind of this confused awe. They're in awe of Jesus, but they, they don't quite get it. It's powerful, and he's powerful, and, but they don't quite understand. He's, he's blowing their frameworks. And then Mark says the crowd, the rest of the crowd, how are, how are they? Are they amazed? What does it say? They are afraid. Isn't that interesting? They're following. You think they would just stop following Jesus if they're afraid. But, but it's like a moth to a flame, right? He, he's amazing, and they, they've got to follow him. They can't take their eyes off him, but they're terrified. You would be. I mean, this is a guy who calms storms with his word, who casts out demons, who brings people back to life. They're terrified. And he is heading to Jerusalem where the Pharisees and the Sadducees have their headquarters, the ones that want to kill him. They know a big confrontation is coming, and I think they're probably trying to keep their distance a bit so that they don't become collateral damage. They're afraid, but they can't stop following Jesus. And it's into this tension that Jesus takes his disciples aside again for some private teaching, and this was what he says, verse 33. See, I catch that word. See, behold, I want you to see this. We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him 
and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's saying, let me be clear about it. Let me be clear about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I am going to die. Now, if you've been with us, you know he said this to them twice before. He said it to Peter right after Peter realized he was the Christ and said, you're the Christ. He said, that's right, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter started to rebuke him, tell him he was wrong, and he had to rebuke Peter. He said it a second time to his disciples, and how did they respond the second time he told them? It says they started arguing about who was the greatest. They, they just completely missed it. And here, he spells it out even more. This time, he fills in the details. He says, look, I'm going to be handed over to the priests. They will have a trial. They will condemn me. Then I'll be given over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and they will mock and and beat me and and spit on me and, and then kill me. And after three days, I will rise. He just spells it out. Here it is in detail. This is the plan. You need to see this. And I want you to note two things about this scene, about him saying this here. First of all, notice his courage. He knows what's coming for him in Jerusalem in detail. And it's terrible torture and death. Yet he's not flinching. He is heading there. Matthew says he he heads there with a face of flint. It's amazing. You know, if I knew, or if you told me last night, hey, Carrie, tomorrow after church, uh, there's going to be some thugs waiting for you in the parking lot, and uh, they're going to beat you within an inch of your life, mock you, spit on you, and then slowly kill you painfully. If, If you told me that, today, Andrew would be preaching. You wouldn't find me here. I'd be halfway to Illinois by now. I wouldn't head towards it. But Jesus knows this is a must, that this is the way of his kingdom. It's for our salvation, and he is on it. And secondly, note about this scene that the disciples, as Jesus says this, still don't get it. You would think maybe the third time would be the charm. Maybe it would sink in. They might fully see what he's saying, but their blindness continues because look at their response in verse 35. Do they say, Jesus, this is so terrible. We'll pray for you. We're with you. Do they even say, Jesus, are you sure that's going to happen? That doesn't sound right. We don't understand that. No, what do they say? James and John They say to Jesus, look, we know know you're going to die and everything, but we have just one little request. Verse 35, look at it. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's what they ask. They're wondering, will Jesus do whatever they want? I'm sure Jesus probably at this time probably kind of hung his head. And, and it says that he says to them the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want from me, guys? 
And verse 37, here's their answer. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. See, all they can think The framework that they're looking at Jesus is he's going to be king. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to set up his throne. And all the nations will bow. Perhaps they think that this is what he means when he said he's going to rise on the third day. Maybe they think there's going to be this great battle. He's going to be losing for a couple days. It's going to look really bad. And then he's going to rise up to his throne. And they want to be, they're saying, we want to be on your left. And on your right. James and John, they're they're trying to think ahead and secure the best positions of status in the kingdom. What do they want from Jesus? They want a piece of the glory. They want him to improve their privilege and prosperity now in this life. And they can almost taste it. He's almost to Jerusalem. They're trying to get in early and get their spots. And the thing is, this thinking is not just from James and John. Look at at verse 41. Look what the disciples, how the other disciples respond. And when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This is not the other disciples saying, how could you be talking to Jesus about this when he's going to die? This is terrible. No. They are upset with them for trying to get in early and get the best seats. For trying to get the jump on them. They're upset that they didn't call shotgun first, right? Get the best seats. You see, although the disciples have seen Jesus' miracles and heard his teachings, obviously consider themselves followers of Christ, Christians, as we would say today, they are actually exhibiting signs of what I like to call undiscipleship, of not getting it at all. They are stuck. This is the third time they still don't get it. They're completely stuck. And the first sign of this, of this undiscipleship that's just stuck, is simply a self-promoting focus in your Christianity. They're all about themselves. They're all about their advancements and status. They're even competing with each other. They've bought, t- taken the standards of the world where you, 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 know, you get the most for yourself first. Use whatever power you have to make sure that you prosper and that you get ahead. They've brought it right into their following of Jesus. And they're using Jesus to that end. Jesus, get us the best seats. Give us whatever we want. Let us have the glory. And you know, it's so, in black and white when we read it here, it's so kind of ugly and obvious. We read it and we think the disciples are, what's wrong with them? It's ridiculous. But if you stop for a minute and you reflect, it's just so real. We all have this inherent sinful, self-serving nature that infects even our following of Christ. Be honest for a minute and ask yourself the question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you expect from him? 
from, from being a Christian? Do you expect a better life on this planet? Kind of like a Scientologist, he's a means of self-improvement at view advance. Do you expect a, a, a really good marriage? I'm a good Christian, I'll have a good marriage. That's what he'll bring to me. Do you expect safety and security from, from, you know, all the really bad stuff? I mean, yeah, some bad things will happen in your life, but God takes care of his children, right? So it's kind of an insurance policy. Do you expect your children to turn out right? You're going to raise them in the admonition of the Lord, and he will deliver. Here's my question. Is it happening for you? Are you disappointed? Is Jesus letting you down? I had a friend in college who got saved pretty dramatically out of kind of a rough background. He came to Jesus. And it was really exciting. And he was, he was uh, making radical changes in his life. But eventually, it, it got hard, and he just up and, and walked away from it. And I remember when I was talking to him, kind of pleading with him, he just said to me, hey, Carrie, you know what? I, I tried, but Christianity just didn't work for me. What was he saying? Is he saying, you know, I tried, but I discovered that Jesus didn't actually die for me. Jesus didn't give his life for me. Somehow it didn't take. It just didn't work. Is that what he was saying? That's not what he was saying. Is he saying, Jesus didn't, he may be given other people, you know, eternal life, and, but not me. No, that's not what he was saying. No, he meant that what he wanted from Jesus in this life now, his expectation for improvement and advancement hadn't materialized like he thought. He came for a better seat in this life he called Glory Shotgun, and he didn't get it, and he was out. We have to be honest. What do we expect? What do you expect? Young people, teenagers, as you start to really own your own faith and walk your own walk with Jesus, what do you want from him? I know when I was 16, I, I, I gave my life to the Lord when I was 14, and I was serious, and it was real. But I know, I know when I was 16, I had it all wrong. Like the disciples, I had been around Jesus. I grew up in the church. I, I knew all about him. But I had let the world's agenda had just crept into my Christian walk. And I knew what I wanted. I wanted the good life, but it was the Christian version of the good life. Right? All my friends, my kind of secular friends, they had an idea of a good life. It usually involved, they wanted to get out, get an awesome car, move down to Chicago, get an apartment in Chicago, be able to hang out at the bars, get all the ladies. They had a plan. They were planning on doing that until they were about 35. And I was like, that's silly. You know, I knew I wanted to go to this Bible college, meet a nice girl, be married by like 23, have a kid or two, get a little house. I had it all worked out. And in my mind, I was going to be ahead of those losers. But guess what? Uh, 23 came, and I wasn't even dating anybody. Then 24 came, and nope, 25, 26, still in my parents' basement. 
this Christian thing, it just wasn't working, was it? I was stuck because I had the wrong picture in my mind. I was going for the wrong thing. I had the Ikea instructions, you know, upside down. And I had to rethink and, and grow. And the Lord was gracious to open my eyes and see my un, so I could see my undiscipleship. To see that I'd made my Christianity all about me and my advancement and my good life. Now there's a second, a second thing they do here, a second sign of undiscipleship or being stuck, whatever you want to call it, that you see in their response. And that is spiritual pride. Not only do they have an attitude of self-promotion that has crept into their Christianity, but they are full of spiritual pride. You see, after they ask to sit on Jesus' left and right in his glory, and Jesus tells them they don't know what they're talking about. Look at verse 38. Let's see here. Verse 30, is it 8? I can't read my Bible. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Do you want to sit on my left and right? Are you kidding me? Do you know the cup that I'm about to drink? You think you can take this? The cup, you have to understand, throughout the Old Testament and the New, was always understood to be the cup of God's wrath. In Psalm 75, 8 and Isaiah 51, the wicked of the nations are pictured as having to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs. And Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's why he says, take this cup from me. He's about to go to the cross and drink all the wrath of God for our sins. And he says, take this cup from me. But not your will, but mine. Jesus is saying to them, do you think you can drink that cup with me? That's where he's going to the cross, to his glory. That's his glory, to take all the sins of the world upon him. And when he says, do you think you can be in my baptism? He's using that word. The full general term is basically immersion. Do you think you can be immersed in that with me? What do they say? What's their response? It's amazing. Verse uh, 39, take a look. I'm not going to read it. I'll make you read it. Look at it. Somebody say it. What is it? We are able. We got this, Jesus. We can do it. Now, now I, I understand. They probably didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying. But nonetheless, these guys are pretty spiritually confident, right? We got this. I mean, why else did Jesus pick them, right? They must be pretty great. There's no humility no self-awareness of their own enslavement to sin and their complete inability to deal with it and their brokenness before a holy God. And I love Jesus' response. He says, well, you will drink it. You will experience my baptism. Not, not that they could ever take part in his sin-bearing work or his atoning work, but they will, if they follow him and truly follow him, they will experience his suffering. They will be treated like him. And all you have to do is know the history of the disciples and where their lives went. Because yeah. every one of them was martyred. I think James was stoned to death. Actually, John was the only one who wasn't martyred. He spent his life in prison. And then Jesus 
called all the disciples together, all these 12 that are vying for the best seats and the privilege of the kingdom, and he says this to them in verse 42. And he called them to them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of Man. That's why I had that Daniel 7 passage read. Where the Son of Man rises to the Ancient of Days and he gives them all authority, all kingdom, all dominion, and all the world of nations bow and worship him. What does he come to do? To be served? No. He comes to serve. He comes to give his life as a ransom. To pay for our sin. To free us to life. And this is the pattern, he's saying, of his followers. Of course, you're going to live lives of service, lives of self-giving, not self-promotion, lives of self-sacrifice, not self-sufficiency, lives in which we are to take whatever status and privilege we have and use it to serve others for their spiritual advancement, for their salvation. We are to be slaves of all. This is the heart of discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So how are you doing as you, as you follow along with the disciples do? How, how are you doing in really embracing this in your life? How are you doing with putting on the mindset or, or putting off the mindset of the world and putting on the mind of Christ, that life of service? It's not easy. It is not natural even when we want to do it. We're like the disciples. Robert Rains, as he reflected on this text, he wrote this. I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to get the inside track and obtain special favor, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. The disciples, you guys, who walked with Jesus in real time, struggled to embrace this truth, this disposition of a sacrificial life, constantly veering into self-promotion and spiritual pride and undiscipleship. So how, how do we do it? How do we live this out, this self-giving life? Well, that's where I think this second story comes into play, doesn't it? The story of blind Bartimaeus. It's kind of this living parable that's a rebuke to the disciples and it's a rebuke to us. 
There he is on, on the side of, of the road in Jericho as Jesus and his entourage come through the town on the way to Jerusalem. And he's sitting in the dirt begging, hoping he can get a coin or a scrap of food. This, this blind guy, right, who, he's the only one who sees, though. He has no eyesight, but he has all the insight, doesn't he? Does he have any status? No. He's sitting in the dirt. Does he have any power or, or influence? No, he, he's not even supposed to speak to people above him. Notice in the text, when he cries out, they tell him to be quiet. You don't talk. Does he have any privilege? No, again, he's sitting in the dirt. And as Mark often does, he uses this physical situation of Bartimaeus as a spiritual mirror for the disciples and for us to see who we really are. Helpless, broken people sitting in the dirt, in a sense. Blind to our condition in the darkness of our sin, able to do nothing to help ourselves. But Bartimaeus sees Jesus. It's interesting. Remember how the text started when Jesus called the disciples to see. Behold, I'm heading to Jerusalem. See what I'm about. This guy, he sees. He knows his condition, his need. And he begins to cry out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. They tell him to shut up, and he cries it all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's that messianic title. He's saying, King, my King, have mercy on me. And they can't stop him. And so we see verse 49. And, let's see here. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? He gives that same question. Jesus comes to him and says, What do you want me to do for you? And what's his answer? He doesn't ask for status or privilege. He just says, I want to see. He knows his condition. He knows what he needs. Just let me recover my sight. If only James and John had asked for the same. Jesus, help us see. That's what they needed, right? That's what we all need continually, really. And Jesus said to him, verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He sees, his eyes are open, probably before Jesus even finished his sentence. I mean, what a moment. Think about that guy. Probably been blind all his life. Boom, sight. And what does he do? 
says, and he followed Jesus on the way. He follows him on the way to the cross. He becomes a disciple, one who fully sees, one who fully follows. See, I think blind Bartimaeus models true discipleship for the disciples and for us. I think he shows the disciples that uh, what, it, what it means to live a life of, of service for the salvation of others. That such a life, it's, it's about a heart that knows its helpless condition before God. A heart that cries out for mercy and healing, not status and privilege. A heart that lives that way every day. See, when we really know who we are in our helplessness, and we see the mercy that we've received in Jesus, when that's before us, then I think we are freed to put others first, to serve them first, freed to give our lives for the salvation of others, like our Savior King. See, if you're stuck in your Christian Walk, if you feel like you've just gotten stuck and you, you don't know where you're going, maybe your priorities are wrong. Maybe you've been building that piece of Ikea furniture in the wrong direction. Maybe it's backwards and upside down. Remember how you came to Jesus. How you received his mercy. And live like that every day that you may be a servant of all. I think of Paul in Colossians when he says, just as you received Christ, the disciples need to go back and remember. Bartimaeus is showing them. That's how you continue, just as you received Christ. So walk in him, in that humility, in that mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you are just so real for us. That you show us uh, these disciples with all their faux pas and all their misunderstanding, all their realness, so that we can be honest with ourselves. We come often, Lord, starting in, in mercy and then we move to somehow twist our Christianity into being about us and for you to serve us for our glory. Lord, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us to live every day in that mercy, in that humility before you that will allow us to live like you, to serve others for your salvation, to be true disciples in this world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.